On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Ross Inman about his new book, Christian Philosophy as a Way of Life. So we cover all sorts of topics like just what is Christian philosophy? What does it mean for it to be a way of life? How is it an invitation to wonder? What if it were actually titled Christian Theology as a Way of Life? Would that make any difference? Should everyone really be a philosopher? Is philosophy actually practical? Should we even think of it that way? And if so, why or how? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in thinking seriously, one of the ways we've tried to explain what that looks like is talking about creating or cultivating an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. You could really capture that by saying that we want to be interested in all of life, um, doing it at a, with a critical eye, a posture, but also having a posture of just kindness and potentially wonder which would lead us right into this topic of what we're going to be discussing today called Christian philosophy as a way of life, an invitation to wonder. It's really a fabulous book. It's by Dr. Ross Inman and who we have here. And this is a special episode because Ross, Brandon, and I are all around the table. Brandon, it's the first time you've recorded with us in a very long time. And it's the first time we've done something in person probably since we talked to Ross last on Divine Omnipresence. So this is special in a whole number of ways. I'm excited about it. The book, if you aren't aware, is from Baker Academic. It's a very nice size. So it's like this five by seven, about 200 pages. And I'll give you the, the brief commendation to it that you can read this with your church members. Buy a bunch of copies, start a little reading group with some some guys and gals there, and t- talk through it, think about it. It's, it's the perfect size for that sort of study, uh, though it's also great for your individual life as well. So I commend the book. I'll put a link in the show notes or the description so you can go check it out, click, and get a copy yourself. It's affordably priced. So this is not one of those episodes where we have a $200 Brill book that we're discussing. This is something you can go feed your children with, or you can still feed your children after you get it. Okay, enough. Ross, tell me a little bit about yourself. It's been a while since you've been on the podcast last. A lot of our listeners probably know who you are, but for those who might not, give me the brief bio, and then I'd love to know, when did this book come into your mind to say, I've got to write this? Mm, Good question. Guys, thanks for having me on again. Uh, It's a delight to be with you both in person, live, in the studio. This is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, Ross Inman, and I uh, teach. Uh, I'm assist- associate professor of philosophy here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I've been married to my wife Suzanne for 17 years. We have three young kiddos, uh, Hudson, Declan, and Verity. And um, I, uh, how this book sort of came about—that's a great question. I think it actually emerged from just time in the classroom, and maybe that maybe that was evident as you were reading. Um, you know, you, you get certain questions over and over uh, the more you teach uh, a, a particular subject matter. And I just found that I was getting uh, most of my students in a seminary context, both in the college and a graduate level context, uh, are ministry minded in some particular way. They've got their eyes set on local church ministry, whether vocationally or, or just um, lay level. 
uh, ministry in the local church. And so naturally, they, they, they ask questions about the practicality of what we're doing in the classroom and the subjects we're studying to discipleship and mission and how they parent and, you know, how they uh, coach their kids' sports teams. And they just want to know, uh, what does philosophy have to do with my life, right? And uh, so the more I began to sort of think about these questions and began to ponder uh, how I might want to uh, respond to them, you know, there's, you know, there's about eight years in the classroom that these, the responses have been like given and fine-tuned and uh, tightened up. And I thought, you know, this would be really helpful. And this actually, this book started as a, a standalone introduction to another book. And so it was to another book that's coming out with IVP on uh, Introduction to Metaphysics. And it was a chapter on wonder, metaphysics and wonder. And I started assigning this chapter to students, some of my intro students, and I just got really positive feedback of, I wish, I, even to some of my graduate students, they said, I wish I had read something like this about the practicality of philosophy for discipleship of the Christian life when I was just starting out. And so it kind of put a seed in my mind of, hey, maybe this, maybe I should kind of develop this a little bit more. And so uh, I did. I took a summer and just kind of developed the idea more and took each section of that chapter and made it a chapter. And so what, you, what you're holding is really kind of the fruit of that. So Very nice. So the subtitle of the book is An Invitation to Wonder, and you, you begin early on in the book talking about the science of wonder, that we're the kind of creatures who wonder. And you, you note that there are two uh, key components um, in defining what wonder is. I wonder if you would kind of unpack those, walk us through what those two key components are, and then maybe after that we can connect wonder with philosophy and the relationship between the two. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So um, very, very quickly, I'll just say two two main parts of the book, I'd say. The first is trying to orient readers in a very basic introductory way to a more classical understanding of philosophy, right? And part of that classical understanding of philosophy is uh, this idea of its connection to wonder, right? This goes all the way back to, to Plato. Um, you find it in uh, Greek and Roman and Hellenistic philosophers that wonder, philosophizing has something to do with wondering, right? And so naturally thinking, what is it to wonder, right? And in the last about 15 years, there's just been a rich literature in contemporary psychology about awe and wonder, the psychology of awe and wonder. So it was almost... Um, there was just this, uh, I was very fortunate to be able to like have a body of literature to say, what is it psychologically to actually wonder? Um, and so I'm drawing upon a lot of that contemporary literature in psychology on uh, the science or psychology of wonder. So in particular, uh, Dr. Keltner and Jonathan Haidt, uh, they, they, they pinpoint two main aspects to experiences of wonder, uh, perceived vastness and a need for accommodation, right? So um, to, to be in a state of awe or wonder involves both of these conditions. So the first one, perceived vastness, has something to do with um, being aware of or made aware of something that's much larger than yourself, right? So you're, you're drawn out of your ordinary frame of reference or you're something that strikes you beyond your ordinary level of experience, right? Um, and the second thing is a need for accommodation. So in that, in that, perceived vastness, there's a realization that your current grasp of the world is just too small to take in what it is that you are taking in. So the perceived vastness doesn't just have to do with like standing in front of the Grand Canyon and being in awe of a physical 
uh, of the physical size of something. They actually also talk about being in awe or wonder of a type of theoretical or conceptual complexity as well. So just you're, you're aware of something that you don't currently have categories for or you're not able to currently uh, see how the pieces fit together given your current conceptual framework, that sort of thing. And the second piece would be I need to make some mental adjustments or, or maybe some mental add-ons to be able to accommodate what it is that I'm experiencing. All right? So they actually want to say those two conditions are both necessary and sufficient in their minds. They're not putting it in those terms. Um, for experiences of, of wonder. And they go on to, to talk about, as well as other researchers, the social and individual benefits of, of regular being in regular states of wonder, which is actually really fascinating. I'll just encourage the listeners, dive into that headlong. It is a really fascinating literature. So are the best philosophers out there toddlers? <laughs> right? Is, uh-huh. is this why Jesus has become like a child? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there there is a type of I mean, in all seriousness, there is a uh, an epistemic posture that um, is modeled by children that um, they're able to just feel the weight of the ordinary in a way that maybe I'm not as apt to as an adult, and I don't want to like valorize youth, but in a sense, there's they still have that capacity to feel the weight of the ordinary and mundane that I've, I've maybe lost with age. So that's funny. So there's a, a section where you're kind of like showing how wonder and the philosophical, philosophical life are joined inseparably at the hip is what you, I think, describe it as. And then you give these three Christian theological insights that you think make the wonder-filled philosophical life possible. Theological anthropology, the nature of creation itself, and then the close fit between human cognitive abilities and our appetite to make sense of and understand the world. Can you unpack those in a little bit more detail? Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, so um, again, thinking about the nature of wonder, its classical connection to philosophy, right? Um, And here, I just began thinking about Christianity providing kind of this, this ideological backdrop for the posture of wonder, right? Both the fact that we live in a world that is suffused with things that are truly wonderful to behold, right? We could live in a very drab and ordinary world, but we don't. We live in a world filled and suffused with uh, things that are truly wonderful. Um, but not just that, that we're actually, we're actually, we, we chase these experiences, Right? So we have this kind of inbuilt hunger appetite uh, to be in awe of things. Right? And I give in the book the example of space tourism, right? where people who have just mind-bending amounts of money pursue these experiences. Uh, but of course, we know it's not just millionaires who are pursuing these types of experiences. Right? Uh, when I say go to the Eastern Sierras or go to Yosemite and I behold Half Dome, right? I'm, I, the, my, it's soul-expanding in a sense, right? And that is a, a really rich psychological experience for me. But the fact that I actually hunger for these types of experiences of awe is also interesting. Thirdly, that um, I have the kind of intellectual equipment that is able to discern and track that which is truly wonderful, right? 
And so those three things, when I began thinking, okay, what, what do you need already in place to pursue a wonder-filled philosophical life, right? To pursue what the ancients thought was really the lifeblood of philosophy classically conceived um, was begins in a state of wonder, is sustained by a state of wonder, and culminates in a state of wonder, right? It does, wonder doesn't just jumpstart the examined life, but it's like it maintains it and keeps it going throughout. And that's a, that can be a degreed thing. I want to acknowledge that. Um, what, what do you already need in place? Well, you need a world that's suffused with things that are truly wonderful. Uh, you, need a, you need an appetite, an inbuilt appetite and hunger to actually like behold those things that are truly wonderful. And you also need the kind of uh, cognitive abilities to actually successfully discern and be in a state of wonder, right? So I began thinking theologically about this and, hey, wow, the, the Christian story provides a very, a very nice depiction of all three of those things, right? Um, so we are wonder-hungry by nature. In our argue in the book, it's because ultimately we are made for God, right, who is qualitatively vast and immense beyond our cognitive faculties, can never grasp in full. And so uh, we're ultimately made uh, to behold and delight in and be in awe of the triune God and as well as the, the wonderful work of his hands. So I think there's a really nice theological fit here f that helps account for what I think someone like Plato or Aristotle was gesturing towards, right? But I think it actually makes apt, apt sense of um, why you need Christianity in order for the wonder-filled philosophical life to be, I think, even possible in the first place. To maybe transition to um, what, what the actual um, title of the book is getting at, that philo Christian philosophy as a way of life, um, I, I want us to maybe discuss um, your section on how to live phil philosophically. And for those um, who may have the book when you're listening to this, this is on, on page 50. But you walk through three conditions um, concerning what it means to live the philosophical way of life. And one is to commit to an existential map. The second one is to orient your life around it. And the third is to engage in truth-directed practices. Um, if you would, um, walk through each one of those three and maybe spend um, a fair amount of time on existential map because that might be a new category for some folks who are listening. And tell us what you mean by these three conditions. Great. Yes, happy to. Well, I mean, I guess part of the origin of the book was, was realizing that many people coming to philosophy for the first time had an extremely narrow conception of what philosophy and the philosophical way of life amounts to, right? They, they, they think immediately of something like, as I call in the book, the, the purely reason-driven life, right. right? So something that only people majoring in philosophy or people who have a graduate degree in philosophy or maybe if they're like an Ivy League philosophy professor, right? They're the ones living philosophically. Me, I'm just kind of doing my thing. Um, but I guess there's been a much broader, richer, thicker conception of philosophy historically. And so here I'm just tapping into and really riding on the coattails of uh, very eminent thinkers like Pierre Hadot in his philosophy as a way of life and his what is ancient philosophy. I would say start with what is ancient philosophy. John Cooper, the late John Cooper, also has an excellent book on philosophy as a way of life. 
And what they're doing is they're basically just gesturing back, more than gesturing, they're doing some pretty significant historical work showing that philosophy was um, conceived much more broadly, was a more whole life affair um, rather than a purely reason-driven matter, at least for Hadot, as I put in the book, right? Uh, you do get conceptions uh, of the purely reason-driven life with Cooper uh, and some historians take issue with that. But this idea of philosophy is more than just a subject matter you study, right, where you sort of – you you write the paper, you, you get a grade in the class and you sort of kiss philosophy goodbye, right? Or uh, you've got, you know, someone you know studying philosophy. They're just kind of nerdy. They're kind of weird. Uh, but – you know, you're you're normal, right? You're you're concerned with practical matters, right? So we just have this public relations, or philosophy has a public relations uh, problem, right? And it's a, really a problem of relevance, I think. Um, what does philosophy have to do with like human life on the ground, so to speak, right? We have this very cartoonish view of philosophy and philosophers. So part of the seed of the book is is to help point people towards a different conception that um, is just broader. It doesn't exclude uh, more detailed, fine-grained, technical, philosophical work by any means. It's just much broader than that, right? Um, so a more working-class, blue-collar view of philosophy that brought, that's broadened in scope um, significantly. And so this idea of philosophy as a way of life, really, this is where uh, the scope gets broadened to. So uh, I think we're all fairly fairly aware of the difference between, you know, uh, something we do on occasion and something that's a part of our way of life, right? a way of being in the world, something that's like woven into the very rhythm and fabric of our lives from sunup to sundown, like being a father or being uh, a husband for me would be two things that aren't just moments, right? They, they permeate everything I do from sunup to sundown. Uh, too early sunup sometimes, <laughs> I will say, um, as you guys know. Uh, so this idea of philosophy is not just a moment but a way of life, right? And I give the example of being a musician or being a runner, right, or a surfer. We're all familiar with those who, you know, say they're a musician, but they're really not musicians, right? Or they're not runners, right? They run every now and then. They move their body, you know, briskly every now and then, but they're not runners, right? So I try to identify what, what, makes, what makes something a, a moment versus a way of life. And philosophy as a way of life is one of these things that it engages every facet of the human being. Uh, it, it engages both the intellect and the will. And so I try to really point out in the book that Reason is involved. It's what it makes it a philosophical way of life, but also it's a way of life. It's not just um, using reason to solve mental puzzles. It actually affects uh, what you aim at and what goals are ultimately worth seeking and how you pursue those goals, right? So uh, this idea of philosophy as a way of life, and then I'll unpack the three here, is I think one of the one of the main elements of this is that philosophy, to use Martha Nussbaum's language, um, the ancients had this sort of medical model of philosophizing, where philosophy was was a kind of therapeutic. It was medicinal, right, to the human soul. It was health giving, right. And interestingly enough, if you sort of dig into some of the language the Apostle Paul uses in his pastoral epistles about uh, hygiano, like sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, right? It's actually health-giving. It's life-giving. Um, new book, actually, that points out why there's that connection's not accidental by, I think, Joshua Jip. 
It's uh, Pauline Theology is a Way of Life. Excellent, excellent book to, to consult there. Um, but this idea of philosophy was therapeutic, it was health-giving, right? So far from being some sort of abstruse, um, disconnected subject matter you study to get a grade and you're done with, right? Uh, it was actually it was actually therapeutic in the sense that it led to greater objective health of one's soul. Right? It helped um, bring about uh, right order to uh, the human soul. So this therapeutic conception of philosophy. Right. So the three things that I'm uh, I'm, I'm identifying in particular, I draw these from largely from uh, Caleb Coho and Stephen Grimm, uh, who've done extensive work on uh, philosophy as a way of life. And the first one is commit to an existential map. Now, that language existential map um, is, is mine. That's not theirs. But it's, it's, a, it's a term that I thought was helpful because, um, you know, a map at the end of the day is, is ultimately for navigating some space well, some area well, right? So a, a, a map of Disneyland is ultimately not just to like – master where the lo locations are, but it's so you can actually get around with your kids, your, t your tired and your hungry kids, right? Um, a map of, uh, you know, North Carolina, same. It's not just to get the right truths or the facts about the, about the lay of the land, but it's actually so you can properly navigate things well, be rightly oriented to North Carolina or to Disneyland. So this idea of an existential map, I think, really connects up with um, – Practitioners of a philosophical way of life are going to be committed to an existential map that they will rely upon and order their life around to actually navigate the world well for the sake of living well, right? So an existential map, at least on my conception, is going to, it's going to have a vision of reality and the good life at the very least, right? So it's going to specify what is. So you might say it's going to have some coordinates or other on this map. Right? Some existential maps are going to have different coordinates. Right? Depends on what you think exists and what's fundamental or ultimate. Uh, but it's also going to have some of those coordinates are going to be or they're going to be ordered with respect to one another. Right? Some of those coordinates are going to be maybe more due north than others, or they're going to be higher elevations than others. If you're talking about a topographic map or something like that. Uh, but at the very least, guys, it's going to involve specifying what truly is and what ought to be. So a vision of reality in the good life, right? And so uh, obviously Christian philosophy as a way of life is going to have a specific existential map that one is going to commit to that's shaped by the Christian story. It's going to involve certain coordinates and a certain vision of the good life. So an Epicurean existential map or a Stoic map is going to have very different coordinates and also different uh, cord the coordinates are going to be ordered differently with respect to one another. Right? Some goods are going to be more fundamental or worth pursuing than others. Right? So does that make sense in terms of like what an existential map is? If you guys want to maybe. I mean, it, it, all that's playing in my mind, I keep remembering, is I've heard too many times account James Eglinton talking about Herman Bavink and J.H. Bavink having this like sort of like map of, of thinking about the world. So using that same terminology, and it seems to pun intended, map onto what you're saying. So I just find that very interesting and curious. No, I mean, I, so I guess it's basically those building blocks on that everything else that you do in your life rest on these things that, that um, sort of here are the things that I need to pursue with my time, um, here are the questions that I need to be asking, all of that 
comes from this map that tells me, okay, this question is much more fundamental than this other question. Um, this good is a good that I need to be seeking more uh, than maybe a lesser good. Uh, is that right? Is that yeah. a fair way of putting it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So like even just to, to specify a little bit more. So take like an Epicurean stoic existential map, right? There's strongly sort of materialistic conceptions of the world. Metaphy- their metaphysic is heavily materialistic, right? So they're going to have fewer coordinates on the map. And thereby, the way those coordinates are ordered with respect to one another, they're going to be just totally uh, blind to certain coordinates that the Christian story will say, well, if you miss these coordinates, you miss not only coordinates, you miss the most important coordinates. Yeah. So as I'm thinking about like the existential maps that we're talking about here, if if I'm an American living today, what's the what's the standard map that you would say that all of us sort of like share in common? Um, is it similar to an Epicurean map? Is it similar to a Stoic map? What, where are they similar and different? And I, I, I just find it interesting to think about because, you know, there seems to be when we talk about Epicureans or Stoics in the past, there's like a set defined like this is how a lot of people are thinking about the world. Are we still thinking about the world in the same way? Or has our map been updated in our contemporary context? Does that make sense? Ooh, that's a really fascinating question. It's a question that seems partly sociological that maybe I'm not sure really to how to answer that aspect of it in terms of what are the general um, kind of ideological trends in the United States in terms of what are their core kind of fundamental beliefs and commitments. I would say uh, in terms of visions of the good life, in terms of how some of those coordinates are ordered with respect to one another, um, you know, we could mention some that perhaps characterize a subset of the population. So I'm thinking of like Jesus's words that, you know, life doesn't consist in the abundance of one's possessions, right? Or um, the pursuit of power or position uh, or authority, um, or uh, pleasure, uh, whether sexual or otherwise. Um, you know, these are obviously, you know, someone is living, someone who pursues uh, unbridled pleasure uh, as sort of an ultimate good or the summum bonum, right, is obviously living according to an existential map. Now, they might not acknowledge that, but, I mean, it's obviously serving as a kind of background that's ordering what they pursue and why they pursue it, right? So they've obviously committed to an existential map. So the person who is, who is climbing over their coworkers for that promotion, right? Or the person who is, um, uh, you know, treating their coworkers unjustly so that they can get, uh, you, they can get a leg up in the company or whatnot, right? They're obviously, there's some core beliefs that are driving what they do, Right. And, and perhaps one of those beliefs is a commitment to uh, a commitment to a position of power, a position of authority as obviously some good, obviously a greater good than you know, treating the other people with dignity and respect. Uh, so I think we're all living according to some existential map or other. Um, but I think we can identify um, some some general trends in kind of. So this thicker account of philosophy that you've given here, um, inviting a lot of people into this way of life, it seems that 
over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, there has been an influx, at least in theological circles, to sort of do the same thing. Let's invite everybody to the task of theology. And it's become, there's a book, I think, called, you know, Everybody's a Theologian, You're a Theologian, or something like that. Is there a worry that with a thicker conception of philosophy that we might end up diluting the real technical aspect of philosophy that should stay there. So there's, at least in my mind, there should be a demarcation between someone who's a philosopher and someone who is not, though everybody should be invited to this philosophical project as a way of life. So how would you go about like saying, let's, there is some hierarchy of philosophizing that's here? Yeah, yeah. Good. I think, I think, Articulating the second tenet will help with answering that question, actually, because I think um, the second the second tenet would be orienting yourself or orienting your life around an existential map, right? And here is it, it's getting to the idea that you know living philosophically isn't just mentally assenting or nodding to a particular view of reality in the good life, right? It has to sort of engage the will and begin to uh, shape the way that you act, right? So you actually live as if, you know, there are these coordinates and they're ordered with respect to one another, right? Um, So – but this can come in degrees. So this idea – and this is why I think this is so important. Um, This idea of uh, practitioners of a philosophical way of life have their life and practices – this is how I put in the book – structured by the existential map to which they are committed. So this can include both philosophical novice and philosophical veteran alike, right? So the example that Coho and Grimm give, which I find helpful personally, is say someone could, let's just say, sort of um, use an example that's not as totalizing as an existential map would be. So suppose somebody takes a commitment to bodily health right, as a good worth pursuing, right? They mentally assent to that good as a good worth pursuing. Now, you know, the new year is coming around, you know, a lot of people will be making this mental assent, you know, assert, assent to the, the view that bodily health is a good worth pursuing, right? We have new year's resolutions. But of course, if it stays at the level of mental assent alone, we wouldn't say they're actually living in such a way that they're they're ordering their actions around that being the case, right? Are they going? Are they going to the gym? Are they are they watching their diet? What what are they doing? Right? What are they doing is what we want to know, not what do they mentally assent to. So this idea of you can have you can have both um, health novices and health veterans, right? You can have people who are more or less committed to the good of bodily health, right? So you could have somebody who is just beginning to get into exercise and starting a diet, right? They are embarking on a way of life. Suppose they're just they've just started, right, to to commit to an exercise routine and watching their diet. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there's like the the bodybuilder and the fitness guru, right? We would say they're both they've both oriented their life around uh, the good of bodily health and it's worth pursuing, but they're doing so to very different degrees, right? So I guess I want to have a view of philosophy that both allows for the novices and the veterans. So I would say this is a, this is a difference of degree in particular. Uh, so a pro- what we call professional philosopher today, which um, I think 
to some of these ancients would have sounded very strange, but what we call professional philosophers today would be would be those who are on the further end of the spectrum, right? Uh, they get a paycheck from teaching, from writing, from studying philosophy, um, from engaging philosophical ideas, uh, perhaps even their um, their entire lives be being permeated with uh, the pursuit of certain types of goods and so on. But I also want to say that the college freshman who's just gotten, gotten bitten by the philosophical bug and who's actually started to pursue philosophy as a way of life and who's actually like laying aside lesser goods to pursue wisdom. Think of like the, the early Augustine. Right. Think of Augustine, right, when he came across Cicero's Hortensius, right? And I talk about this at the end of the book that um, I want to say he, in a way he began to live philosophically, right? His loves changed. His priorities changed. He began to long for wisdom and not these inferior you know, bodily goods that he was pursuing as, as the highest goods, right? So I do want – I want to allow space for both, both ends of the spectrum. And I think most people, when they think of philosophy today, they think of some like endowed academic chair or something like that. And I want to say that may well you know, be included in the, in the spectrum. But I also want to say someone who endows an academic chair who is publishing extensively in the journal philosophy or mind or news, right, they may not be living philosophically. Um, that's, that's another added component to it. They might be really smart. They might be um, writing very technical articles. But I don't know anything about what they do from nine to five. I don't know anything about how they do this or that. You know what I mean? So um, I could have somebody write outstanding papers on uh, the importance of bodily health and being committed to it. <laughs> right? But if you ask me, are they living philosophically, I'd need more information. I need to know a little bit about how do they spend their time? How do they spend their resources? That makes sense. What do they do? So another follow-up on the thicker account. I want to ask, you give an example of Boethius as sort of like a model for thinking through this. And I think I, I've heard some who are also reading the book of wondering, like, what's really the, the difference between Christian philosophy as a way of life and Christian theology of, as a way of life? I think a lot of people would think of Boethius, think of a theologian, even though he's clearly writing a philosophical work, I think, there. Um You've given these examples of Christian spiritual exercises and their therapeutic benefits. I mean, solitude, self-examination, you know, examination, meditation, spiritual friendship. A lot of people read these and think this is traditionally theology and not necessarily philosophy. So is there a distinction? Should there be a distinction? How should we think about that? Yeah, this is a really big question. Um, and I think there are, there are many different inroads into it. I, I will just say, at the very least, using Boethius is actually uh, is actually intentional because one, I think he is a very clear instance of a therapeutic conception of philosophy in the Christian tradition. But he's also but he's also surprisingly uh, silent on some more meaty theological content. And there's a lot of scholarly debate about why doesn't he say more explicitly Christian things in the consolation? And so there's a whole host of different theories as to why Boethius isn't more explicitly Christian. But I think at minimally what he's doing in, in consolation is he's identifying, I think very helpfully, 
by way of traditional philosophical reasoning and dialectic, what are these various sidetracks, these false visions of happiness in eudaimonia, and why they go wrong? Right? So uh, I think we would all say that that's, he's doing philosophy there. He's saying, hey, you've, you've, you're, you're filling in what the content of eudaimonia or happiness is. It's uh, fame or power or pleasure. Let me tell you why that's not right. right? And he goes through a series of uh, philosophical dialogues and reasoning as to why fame and pleasure can't be the summum bonum. Right? It's got to be self-sufficient and it leaves nothing, nothing to be desired. And he says, neither fame, nor money, nor power, nor pleasure, these all leave something to be desired, and none of them are self-sufficient. So he's engaged in philosophical reasoning on why these various sidetracks, he calls them shadows of happiness. They're not the real substance. They're not the real thing. Um, and then at the end, he actually says, you know, it's, it's actually God himself who is the summum bonum because only God can sort of fit the bill or the description of what of happiness is supposed to be classically. So um, I use Boethius because he's philosophy is playing a very minimal role there on identifying these various sidetracks, these shadows of happiness, and showing why they're not sufficient. Right? But uh, at the end of the day, I, I want to say that living, living a Christian philosophical life is inevitably going to involve uh, an existential map and being committed to an existential map and orienting your life around an existential map to some degree or other, that's shaped by the Christian story. And what, what is going to give shape to that existential map is explicitly Christian teaching. So uh, it's what sets an Epicurean uh, existential map and an Epicurean philosophical way of life apart from, say, a Christian philosophical way of life. So uh, theological content is, 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 a, is an essential subset, but I don't think it's the entirety. I don't think there's an entire sort of one-to-one -one overlap between um, living theologically as a Christian and living philosophically as a Christian. And that has something to do with the end about the difference between philosophical and theological contemplation. I don't think those are the same. Um, although they can be, as uh, Friedrich Bauerschmidt puts it at the end, I, 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 I cite him saying, you know, the, just as the, the, uh, the Israelites' uh, road to the promised land was one single road, right, uh, led by uh, a pillar of fire in, a, in, in the cloud, right, these were not two different roads to the promised land. So too, our road to beatitude on the journey of life is one road. Right? And philosophy and theology are not two different roads, he argues, at least for, for Aquinas. Um, these are two ways by which we travel one and the same road to beatitude. They involve different grounds for justifying some of our, some of our beliefs. I think theology is, uh, is uh, theological tenets are justified by way of divine testimony in Scripture. Um, and philosophical beliefs receive their more direct justification from, uh, from uh, human reason. But these are complementary, as you guys know. These are not um, in contradiction, at least when they're done well. Um, so uh, I think you cannot live philosophically as a Christian without leaning upon and relying upon certain explicitly Christian teaching about what coordinates are there and how they're ordered. Right. So divine testimony gives you 
what are the coordinates, and how are they ordered, right? Um, and I think it can receive support and it can be bolstered by philosophical reasoning. We've got the right coordinates and we've got the right ordering of the coordinates, right? Um, but also, too, when, when you begin to live philosophically as a Christian, when you begin to actually order and orient your life around that existential map, as I say in the book, we're often lured away to rival ways, right? And so the living philosophically distinctively can help, I think, dampen the allure of these rival visions of reality and the good life, um, say, by carefully reflecting upon the nature of the good, right? I can become more confident that the pursuit of unbridled pleasure is not, is not the highest good for human beings, right? Uh, so I think philosophy can be a helpful aid along the way. Um, and I think the way these ancients characterized philosophy, I think they were doing, they were doing philosophy, even some of these pagan philosophers uh, like Seneca or Cicero or Marcus Aurelius, they were, they were living philosophically. They weren't doing theology. Does that at least yeah. scratch the itch? Yeah, There's a lot to say about kind of how to demarcate these things. But um, I guess I just want to say that glancing backwards in, 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 our, in the Christian tradition, they didn't always say, hey, now I'm doing philosophy and now I'm doing theology. So when you read some of these thinkers, they're kind of like two inseparable chords woven together um, as well as like Christian spirituality. And that's why the book is, in, is intentionally weaving these things together because you don't find in, say, the fathers or the medievals, you don't find these, these sort of neatly sequestered and hermetically sealed off from one another. So I guess I was trying to do a little bit of that weaving too with the book as well. I think you do a really nice job in the second half of the book addressing, you know, potential objections related around practicality and if um, philosophy can actually be practical. And you do so, um, you know, you cite scripture along the way, um, particularly I, I think you, you Which cite you're not allowed book. to do. <laughs> you cite the book of Hosea. There's a scripture. Minor in prophets, no less. Uh, Hosea in um, establishing the connection between the mind and the will. And I think that's important um, in addressing the practicality the practicality concern. But then a little bit later on, I think this kind of leads right into um, what you talk about when you um, you discuss these two intellectual postures. And you cite a lot of Paul here, um, Colossians, Ephesians, Second uh, Corinthians, about how there's an active posture and then there's a passive posture. And it seems to me that um, if what you say that there's no middle ground, if that's the truth, then um, which one of those postures we take is actually going to directly relate to not only how we think but how we live. So I think that points right to um, just how practical and meaningful this is. But what do you mean exactly by an active or a passive posture? Maybe walk us through a couple of those passages that you reference and um, why you reference them. Yeah, yeah. So let me see if I can uh, remember. So I, I think— um, I'm I'm really leaning into what Paul says in Colossians two eight, right? Avoid philosophy and vain deceit, um, and and don't be held captive, right? Um, by philosophy and vain deceit. So this idea of um, ideas, sort of seizing upon one and holding one captive, uh, and then also in uh, Ephesians chapter four. Right, this idea of being carried about by every wind of doctrine. So this idea of being carried about 
to me suggest a kind of passive posture, right? You are being the one carried about by uh, every wind of doctrine. So that, to me, that suggests these are ideas that are actually influencing the way that I live, the way that I love, uh, at a very subtle, perhaps even tacit level, that uh, have an enormous power to shape my life. Um, so not being taken captive by vain philosoph philosophy and vain deceit, Colossians 2.8, Ephesians 4, um, not being carried about by every wind of doctrine. And that passage in Ephesians 4 is so interesting, Brandon, because Paul's talking about growing up into, into, into maturity, right, into the full stature of Christ. And he weds not being carried about anymore by these ideas, becoming more intellectually sure-footed as a part of Christian maturity. I think that's really important. It's often missed. Um, that as I grow in Christ and mature in Christ, I'm going to be more intellectually stable, increasingly intellectually stable than I was before. Right? I'm going to be more sure-footed than I was before. Right? And then Second uh, Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, where Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive and make it obedient. Right? So this idea of we take every thought captive. So the same language that Paul's using here is don't be taken captive by, but take be the captor, right? Be the one in the active intellectual posture towards ideas. Be aware of what ideas are currently shaping you. And if they're in line with, with the kingdom and all that's true, good, and beautiful in Christ, uh, lean into them. And if they're not, if they're raised up against the knowledge of God— well, then you know what to do, right? You engage them. You, uh, you tear them down, right? You don't let them have a hold and, on your life and on your actions. Uh, bring your ideas and your beliefs in line with, uh, with, uh, with the Christian tradition. So that, that chapter in, uh, what is it? Uh, let's see, Colossians 2.8. I actually think far from that being an injunction not to study philosophy— my own personal take on that, how I read that is I think Paul is saying something like this. Be so aware of and cognizant of the ideas that are shaping your life and your actions. Um, that is, be so philosophically engaged with ideas that you're aware and you're able to discern what are the hollow and deceptive ideas that are shaping my day from nine to five. And what are the ones that are according to Christ, not according to the elemental spirits of the world? So there are two patterns of ideas, right? Whether we're discerning enough to know which are the ones that are actually according to Christ and which are the ones that are according to the elemental spirits of the world. If I'm totally unaware and in, unable to discern which is which, right, I'm in trouble. Well, I will be taken captive, no doubt about it. So I think Paul's actually saying be discerning enough, be engaged enough to know which is which, to know which to take captive and which to not be taken captive by, which to lean into and which to lock up. <laughs> and so that's the idea, I think, is at least that's how I read that passage. So I'm really just trying to lean into Pauline language there, honestly. I guess the last question I have is, is related to um, how you end the book, which is on the essence of the church. And, um, you know, you talk about how sort of, um, well, you cite 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the builder and put, uh, buttress of truth. And then you say that, you know, if you were to ask people to describe the church today, um, 
would they recognize the essence of the church as a truth-seeking um, body? And, and you know, you cite some statistical studies that, um, you know, that's probably not the first thing that would come to people's minds when they think about the church today. But I think this is important because it's, it's not only, at least this is what I gleaned from it, you're not only saying, hey, philosophy and being, you know, uh, a truth seeker is worth your time as a Christian, but you're actually saying, no, this is like the essence of what it means to be the church. So um, speak directly to pastors and, and maybe tell why contemplation is uh, such a key part of their role as being a shepherd. Mm, what a question. Thanks for asking that, Brandon. Yeah, so very broadly considered, I would say contemplation, um, which is a, one of these multifaceted jewels that can we can say a lot about. But it's, as, as Aquinas puts it, it's the consideration of, of truth, right? And there's somehow, it's the fulfillment of the intellect's natural hunger for truth, right? So to feed the intellect's desire for the true, right? When we contemplate, we deeply consider and attend to um, the truth of things, right? You can do that either from the standpoint of theology or you can do that from the standpoint of philosophy. So when I'm saying that the, the church by her nature is a pillar and a buttress of the truth, right, is that uh, the saints of God are redeemed to not only um, stand in but to walk in the truth but also to herald the truth, Right. So the, the sort of the telos of the people of God isn't unrelated to standing in, walking in, and heralding the truth, right? And I would just say, you know, read First John very carefully and see how the Apostle John understands professing the name of Christ and walking in the truth and having the truth be in us. Is, these are not like an optional side project for those who bear the name of Christ. This is part of the project itself, right? Um, we are to walk in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I would say in terms of what the church is, it, it is essentially and by nature truth-oriented in those three ways, right? Um, and so if we are to, I think, as, as pastors, uh, pastors are to guide their people into the way of Christ, which is the way that is uh, marked by, and I, I put in the book, uh, I think more broadly, I'm trying to articulate a vision of the Christian life that um, doesn't often get as much attention, but it is about walking, seeing and discerning and walking in uh, the truth of a way of life that Scripture carves out for us. So, I would just say to pastors, um, if, if pastoral ministry doesn't involve leading the people of God to walk more faithfully along the true and the good and beautiful way uh, of Christ, um, then what is it doing? Right? Um, and I think the contemplative dimension to ministry can very easily be lost. You know, I mean, would love to know what you guys think about this too, but can very easily be lost within the warp and the woof of uh, contemporary metrics of what successful ministry looks like today. And, and that's why I try at least to, to point readers to uh, Gregory the Great's book of Pastoral Rule, where he talks about the importance of 
at least a contemplative dimension to pastoral ministry and helping the people of God um, see and savor and behold God in, in truth, goodness, and in, in all of his beauty so that they can more faithfully walk along the way, right, and not be lured away to these sidetracks or these shadows of ha- uh, these shadows of happiness, but they can firmly and faithfully walk along the way, the good way in which they find rest for their souls. But I, I'd just be curious, do you guys think that there's kind of a, a temptation to construe pastoral ministry where where ministry or success in ministry sort of loses its heavenly or contemplative orbit or frame. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned along the way in the book how, you know, we're drawn in in the modern world to um, productivity and things that we can measure tangibly, um, things we can count. And so um, there's a definite, I think, pull in ministry and I, and I think maybe this comes with expectations uh, of the church body. Of course, that's going to vary from church to church. But that if you're not um, doing something that we can count, that that's not real work. So it's like, you know, reading and studying. Well, that's not really, you know, part of your job, part of your role. Is, or at least it shouldn't be one of the most important ones. You know, do that when you don't have anything else to do. Um, but I think what you're saying is, and I think there's more to being a pastor than, you know, crawling in your office and, and, and studying but that is, I mean, if we're a truth-seeking body and a pastor is to shepherd and lead that body, then we need to make sure that um, we're seeking after truth ourselves. And so I think um, one of the big issues is just the way that we measure ministry pro- productivity today in the church. But. I mean, it's not just something in the water. When I was a pastoral intern, the very first pastoral internship I had, one of the required books we had was Seven Practices for Effective Ministry. And the basic thesis of this book is you have to keep score. If you want to like do like if you want to be an effective minister, you have to keep score in some way. And what can we actually measure and keep score on? Well, we can't measure all these other things. So let's measure the stuff that you can measure. How many attendees you have? How many different classes you have? Like these different like outputs that you're doing. That's all you can really effectively measure. So that's what we're going to emphasize and focus on. And I think that really does end up even if it's not like you're not intuitively trying to do that. You're not going out and saying, this really is all that matters. If that's all you're tracking, naturally, that's what's going to end up becoming all you do. It's the same story of the, you know, like how you incentivize people. Well, if we incentivize police, police officers, we're going to pay you based on the mileage that you have, or you're just going to go up and down the highway driving to clock that mileage, just because that's sort of like the reward of the carrot on the stick. So I think in the same way with pastors, if all we're tracking is, I, I mean, whatever the, however many people show up on a Sunday, that's what you're going to end up naturally focusing on is how many people did I get, show, how many baptisms did I have? And I think that ends up short-circuit, short-circuiting how pastors should be caring and thinking about what is baptism, who should be qualified for baptism, when should I be administering baptism, questions like that. Um, if you just want to have as many members at your church as you can possibly have, you're going to end up lowering standards and not really having the conversations that you should be having as a pastor with potential members. You may not be uncovering things that should be uncovered in those scenarios, but I don't want to be giving all the advice here. So I'm the interviewee or interviewer, not the interviewee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess uh, just, you know, I I have a whole chapter where I'm, I'm really trying to hone in on why does it sound so wrong to say living philosophically as a Christian can be one of the most practical ways you can live your life? And I say that we always make these types of practicality or relevance judgments against a backdrop 
a sort of a value system by which we measure value judgments, right? And I just think this whole idea of, as Pieper puts it, Joseph Pieper, the, the workaday world, right, where everything is valuable and activity is valuable only insofar as it produces some sort of quantifiable or measurable results. And, and he ultimately roots that in a very anemic anthropology, right? We are what we produce. And, and I guess if you could sort of have the, the golden thread throughout this book is whether philosophy is a practical endeavor depends on what we are. If God has so constituted us, human beings, image bearers, with these natural hungers for truth and goodness, right? The pursuit of those things, the satisfaction of those hungers and desires is part of what it is to be human, right? We, can, we, we don't choose to have these desires, but we can choose to either uh, pursue them or not pursue them. And, I, and the example I give is, you know, we don't choose to have hunger for food, physical appetite for food. I can fail to eat, but that would be detrimental to my existence as a biological creature, right? So, um, so too, if we have these natural capacities that are given to us by God, the fulfillment of which is just part of what it means to be human, right? The seeking to fulfill these particular capacities. We are meaning-seeking animals by nature. And so I guess ministry to humans, right, if it leaves out that dimension— is going to be incredibly reductionistic and incredibly one-dimensional. And we're going to miss like helping people cultivate and feed upon uh, that which they were made to see and to feed upon, right? And you have like, uh, think of like Second Peter, if I'm getting, I think I'm getting that right. Um, uh, or is it First Peter? You guys remind, remind me where it talks about supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And, and, it, and he sort of gives this sort of list of virtues. I think it's first Peter, but I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. Yeah, so if we, mi- if we miss, if we characterize ministry, if our view of ministry is shaped more by what Pieper calls the workaday world and its value metric, and not by Scripture, right, and not by a sort of a rich biblical anthropology about what we are as creatures, what sets us apart from other creatures here below, we're going to miss a vital aspect of ministry to humans, right? Human beings are the subjects of ministry, right? And sometimes it's easy to forget that when we sort of let down our guard and forget that we are being shaped by view of the world, this workaday world, and what values it says are ultimately practical or relevant. It is a strong stream that unless you're pushing against it, you will be shaped and formed in this way, yeah. no doubt. I mean, I think of my my life in the work world. I mean, the, there's very much like the managerial culture of unless I can see the measurable outcome of the things that you've done today, at the end of the week when you tell me all the, all the things you've done, then you're not really an effective employee. And so there's just that downstream impact of I've got to do things that I can show on paper. I did this and this and this to contribute to the revenue stream or whatever it is. But there is a deep core intuition that everybody shares of like, I don't want to be a cog in the machine. I don't want to just plug in these numbers and do these things. I want to do something more than that. And it seems to be that's a little bit of what you're scratching here. Before we close up, though, I want to ask a couple of short little questions that I think will be fun that others might not be asking about the book in particular. So I, I'm interested, you know, it takes a long time to write a book. What was the song that you listened to the most? Or do you not listen to anything when you write? 
<laughs> oh, good question. Other than the uh, the noises of my children buzzing about the home, uh, I do not listen to music when I write. I cannot listen to music when I write. So it's either white noise um, or nothing at all. So do you all exclusively write in your office or at home or do you write elsewhere? So most of this book was written on vacation – well, staying with family in San Diego. So uh, I would go to the local library. Um, you know, each morning I'd spend a couple hours just plugging away on the book. Um, and it took, you know, it took, I think, two months. So do, do you drink coffee or other things while you write or do you just? Yeah, yeah I do. When I'm, you know, in the library, when they would let me have coffee, I would, I would drink coffee. But yeah, no, I, um, I, uh, it's a very sort of informal process for me. Um, although I do need, I do need like space and quiet to be able to actually like get into the ideas. So Brandon, do you have anything else? Nope. This has been great. Uh, so for those who are listening again, you need to go get yourself a copy of the book. Uh, I've seen a lot of people on, on the interwebs lately sharing about how helpful it is. Oh, one question I did, another question. So you've got, I mean, a list of endorsers here. I mean, great ones. If there was anyone who is no longer living that you could have as an endorser on the back of the book, who would that be? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. J.I. Packer, of course. <laughs> Man. R.C. Sproul? Well, Packer endorsed every book. So, yeah. Oh, geez. That's a, that's a great question. Um, Man, Plato would be a big win <laughs> to have Plato on the back of one's book. Uh, although Michael Humer has a nice intro to philosophy book where he it's self-published, and you can see why he he gives endorsements from Aristotle, he gives <laughs> endorsements from Socrates, and they're hilarious. But I think Plato would be uh, uh, would be a, would be one that uh, I would value immensely. Well, there seems like obviously there's like a dozen different questions that we could have discussed here. You mentioned how this originally started as a chapter, becomes a book. Well, I think we could do a book on each chapter is what we're saying here. So go go ahead and write some more stuff, Ross. We, we appreciate it. You mentioned you have a book on metaphysics coming out at some point. That should be very exciting. I imagine a lot of our listeners would be very interested in that. So be on the lookout for that whenever that does hit the market. You should go get a copy yourself. Uh, support Ross and the work he's doing. He is one of the most um, helpful Christian philosophers there are out there. There's not a lot of Christian philosophers in the in the professional sense of the word. Um, and then there's even even smaller subset of them that are doing work that I think is spiritually edifying, uh, that's, that's thinking about the intersection of theology and philosophy. And so support all the stuff that he's doing. Everything he's writing, you should be reading, including his old book, Substance and the Fundamentality of the Familiar. Though if, if you're not in the guild, that can be a little bit more difficult and challenging. So bite-sized chunks at a time, we'll start here and move to that. So thanks, Ross. This has been awesome. Yeah. As always, you've been listening to the only intellectual, intellectual, the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon.
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.